0: Well, good morning. This morning I have the privilege of leading our continued study into Colossians chapter 3. As I've gone through my study of this passage the past few weeks, I really found the passage to be very encouraging, and I hope that you are encouraged by this passage as well. But before we, we begin, let us humbly go to God in prayer as we depend on His grace and provision to understand His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are gathered before you this morning to worship you and because we want to hear your word. By the world standard, we recognize that this gathering is of no great significance. We're a relatively small number of average men and women here on a cool fall morning. But we know that the church at Colossae was also small, its people also average and yet you love them and cared for them so much that you inspired Paul to write this letter to them. And in the same way, you love and care for us so much that you have preserved this letter through the generation for our benefit. Help us to understand your word and move us to respond to it in accordance with your sovereign will. Amen. Well, at my place of work recently we've been hiring for a vacant position, and I have been given the task of leading much of that process, which of course includes writing out a list of interview questions for people that we're considering. If you've ever done much research on typical interview questions, maybe as an interviewer or interviewee, you may have seen what at first appears to be a pretty simple question. Who are you? Or maybe this is worded as, describe yourself. And if you've ever been asked such a question in any setting, you probably recognize that that's a difficult one to answer, mostly because the question is extremely vague, and we really don't know what the person who's asking it wants out of us. But it's also difficult to answer because those questions really kind of get at our identity, and identity is kind of a difficult topic for us in our culture today. How do we define our identity? Well, let's look at what culture teaches us says it's really important to figure out, but there's an endless number of ways that we can define it. We can define it by our physical characteristics, our race, ethnicity, gender, age, or maybe just our general physical ability. We can define our identity by our relationships, whether we're single, married, divorced, widowed, whether we're parents or not, whether we're grandparents or not. Maybe we're an only child, or maybe we were adopted. We can define our identities by our careers. Maybe we're a store clerk, a restaurant server, a teacher, a retiree. We can define it by our hobbies. So in Grand Junction, we have lots of hunters and fishermen and bicyclists, of course. And we can define it by the good things that we try to do. Maybe we volunteer at hospice or Homeward Bound or a number of other worthy uh, local causes. Many of us, I think, tend to define our identity based on our brokenness. We might be seeing ourselves as an alcoholic, a drug addict, a criminal, someone who's depressed, or maybe we're just a grumpy, self-centered person. So if we listen to our culture, they're going to tell us that all of those things and more have the potential to make up our identity. Studying through this, I saw one definition of identity given by a psychologist that I want to share. He said it was our all-encompassing system of memories, experiences, feelings, thoughts, relationships, and values that define who each of us is. A pretty comprehensive definition, so comprehensive that I don't think it helps us at all. <laughs> that same psychologist admits that we as living beings Search for and find comfort in a solid sense of identity. It grounds us, it gives us confidence, and it affects every single thing in our lives. So here we have modern science saying, this is really important for you to figure it out, but I can't help you do it. (laughs) Thankfully, the Christian perspective on identity is not so frustrating. Pastor and writer John Piper has delved into this topic, and in a series of devotionals, he wrote, on something he calls self-identity, which is really what we've been talking about. He says the world around us speaks of self-identity often, and it really seeks to answer the question of how we view ourselves. And he thinks that question is worth our time considering, but it's really not what our true identity is. For that, we have to look to God. Piper says the Christian's identity is not defined in terms of who we are, who we think we are, in and of ourselves, rather, it's defined by what God says about us, how God works in us, the relationship that God creates with us, and the destiny that God appoints for us. And so this biblical understanding of identity is not focused on us, it's focused on God. And really, that shouldn't surprise us. You don't have to go too many pages into your Bible before you are introduced to the characters Abram and Sarai and I use those names intentionally. The time we're introduced to them in Genesis 11, there's no such thing as Israelites. There is no such thing as God's chosen people. Abram was just another man amongst a group of people known as the Chaldeans. But God chose him. God chose Abram and Sarai to be the ancestral root of a great nation, and that great, great nation, of course, would be his chosen people of Israel. And this identity is given to them by God, and God even gives them new names to reflect this new identity. Abram becomes Abraham, which means father of many, and Sarai becomes Sarah, which means princess of the multitudes. So this was their God-given identity. So why all this talk about identity? Well, these past few weeks, we've been in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And throughout chapter 3 this letter kind of speaks the language of identity. Early in chapter 3 we see phrases like Christ being our life or putting to death our earthly nature, taking off our old self and putting on the new self. We have things like our life, earthly nature, old self, new self. All four of these ideas really get at to the idea of our identity. So far, we've focused on the old self in chapter 3, and now we're going to turn to this idea of the new self. So, Who is this new self? Let's find out. So here God's word from Paul's letter to Colossians, chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of our Lord. Now before we dive too far into this topic of identity, we're going to briefly revisit some of the lessons from chapters 1 and 2 of this letter that helps set the stage for us. Throughout this series, we've used the title, and it's up on the screen, Jesus at the Center or some similar variation. And what this title communicates is really the theme of the letter. And we've seen throughout our study that Jesus is all that we need. Jesus has already removed our sins from us. He's already given us a new life. Jesus himself is God. The fullness of the deity dwells within him. And so as God, Jesus then has all authority and power to give us this new life and to make us into a new creation. And of course, that means that he, with that power and authority, gets to define who we are as that new creation as well. So who are we then? Well, the answer really comes here in verse 12. We, just like the church at Colossae, are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You are dearly loved by God. This is probably not how we've always defined ourselves, as we discussed earlier. Probably not how the church members at Colossae define themselves either. Looking at verse 11, we get the sense that they define themselves in many ways just as we do. There was Gentiles and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, just being those who don't speak Greek, Scythians, slaves and free people. But not anymore, Paul says. God has chosen them just as God has chosen us. We are identified as God's people, and we are holy and dearly loved by Him. And so all those other ways that we might identify ourselves that tend to divide us, they don't apply anymore. We are now a single body because of Christ, and that body we can call God's church. Part of this identity is that we are holy To be holy in a biblical sense for followers of Christ means that we are set apart for a purpose, and specifically a purpose determined and given to us by God. We don't have to overcomplicate this purpose. I think most of us remember Jesus' great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And hopefully we also remember Jesus' great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. These are the purposes for which we have been set apart. But how we get there can be a little bit different among us. <clears throat> and so regardless of the task that we do every day, Paul says that this new identity and this new purpose that we're given by God must be evident in the way that we live. And that's kind of where he goes next. So still in verse 12, Paul writes, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We might expect Paul to write here to treat one another with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But he says, clothe yourselves, or other translations say, put on, which is saying the exact same thing. We know, of course, that clothing is one of the first things that people notice about us. And the clothing that we wear has the potential to impact how people see us and what they're willing to to listen to us. I could stand up here, give the exact same sermon, and if I'm wearing the shirt that's covered in dry paint that I use to to work on the house, your opinion of my sermon might change compared to what I'm wearing now. Similarly, if I wore a tuxedo, you might kind of wonder then too. So clearly we understand and we know, just from our personal experience, that what people see when they look at us impacts their opinion of us. So what Paul is saying here when he says, clothe yourself with these virtues, is that he wants compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience to be clearly visible among us when people look at us. So there's this idea communicated here that with our new identity, we have to live it out by clothing ourselves in these godly virtues. But there's more. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. When I think of the peace of Christ, I think back to Jesus' parable of the sower, specifically the seed that fell among the thorns. As Jesus explains this parable to his disciples, he says that the cares of this world really were responsible for choking out that person's faith. I think everybody in this room has experienced the potential of this life to pull us away from our faith. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says that we will have trouble in this world. And I think all of us have certainly experienced that as well. But Jesus also says that we are to take heart because he has overcome the world. And he says that if we are weary and heavy burdened, that we can take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he will give us rest. And so in this new identity, we don't have to let the cares of this world get to us, but rather we can let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, as Paul says, and we can be thankful rather than stressed or fearful. But I think we all know that doing that Living with such peace and thankfulness in the midst of trials is a lot easier said than done. Thankfully, we don't go through this life alone. We have one another. Verse 16, Paul writes, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. A couple of weeks ago, Dave taught us the four R's to overcoming our earthly nature. The first of those four R's, if you remember, was remember. We are to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We must remember because our earthly nature, it wants to forget. It wants to forget about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. It wants to forget we're supposed to be thankful And then instead, it wants to focus on those thorns, those cares of this world that try to choke everything else out. So we know from experience that we can't always remember the peace of Christ on our own. But we have our brothers and sisters here to help us remember. And we should help one another by remembering and teaching with God's word and with authentic worship sung from the heart. It's because there's nothing in this world, no care, that can overshadow the good news of Jesus. And there is nothing greater than true and authentic worship of our Lord and God. So here we have this new identity and new purpose. It's pretty simple, right? Clothe yourselves in godly virtues. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful and encourage one another with worship and with God's word. We can do that. Sometimes. As we all know, and as Dave talked about, we're going to mess up. As much as we try to put our sinful nature to death and live as this new creation, we are going to fail. So what happens then when we fail to live up to this new self? Verse 13. Bear with one another, or bear with each other, And forgive one another if any of you has agreements against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Simply put, we must follow the example which God gave to us. God forgave us for our sins against him, and so we must also be willing to forgive one another. But true forgiveness, as exemplified by God, is not simply just forgetting about what happened and going about our own way. Rather, we are to maintain our relationship with that person just as God maintains his relationship with us. We work through the difficulty and we stand by one another as we repent of our sins and we help one another to live a life that honors God, one that displays the virtues we've been talking about. It's a a hard task and more often than not, we don't want to do it. But that's where the first two Words of this verse come in, bear with, bear with each other, work through that difficulty, do what's uncomfortable and what goes against every desire that you have in your heart. We must truly forgive one another because we have been forgiven much. The power of forgiveness is visible throughout the Bible, one example is in the scripture which Aaron read for us this morning. Couple questions as we think back on that: Who showed more love in that story—Jesus in his forgiveness of the sinful woman, or Simon in his judgment of her? But maybe the more important question is: Whose actions—Jesus's or Simon's—fostered a loving response from that woman in return? The answer to both questions, of course, is Jesus. So what that example shows, and as it says, I forget the exact words, was that when we forgive, it actually fosters love between us and the other person. So We forgive because it's one way that we meet the command to love one another. And that brings us to verse 14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So can we act with false compassion and false kindness and false humility, false gentleness and false patience? Can we pretend to forgive, yet still harbor anger in our heart? We sure can. And we probably do regularly more than we care to admit. But what verse 14 tells us here is that all of those virtues and that forgiveness must be authentic. So this isn't an instance where we just Fake it until we make it. It's got to be rooted in love. Going back to our scripture from earlier, Simon, we know, is a Pharisee. So he's all about acting righteously. But he, as we saw, was faking it. He didn't have love for others in his hearts. He had love for himself in his heart. So what happens then if we are like Simon and we act out these virtues, but we don't have love. We can look to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13, verses one through three. Here Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So all of these outward signs Paul lists. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, powerful faith that can even move mountains, giving away everything that one has, even your own body. It's just noise. It's not real and it doesn't count. What this tells us is the heart of anyone who would truly follow God must be transformed. So any outward sign of our faith, compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, must be rooted in love. And that's what Paul is telling us here in Colossians 3. Those are wonderful virtues to act out, but if we don't root them in love, they are worth absolutely nothing. We close this out. Verse 17 really sums up this passage very well. It says, In whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. With this new identity, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, acting and speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus is the purpose for which we are set apart. This means that everything we say and everything we do must be in accordance with God's will for our lives. This needs to be visible in how we treat others, especially those who have wronged us. And it needs to be visible in how we face the cares of this life. And so this idea of Jesus at the center that we've been looking at throughout this passage, it also communicates to us a new way of life, and one in which the love of Jesus is clearly visible to others. But of course, we know that we can't do this alone. We can't transform ourselves alone. As Dave talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's a conflict between this new self, this new identity, and and the old self and that conflict is going to continue within us for as long as we walk this world. And so I want to kind of close by reminding us of Dave's four R's of putting our sinful nature to death because those same four R's will help us also renew—sorry, realize our renewed, reborn nature. I got too many R's there. <laughs> we remember our position with Christ. We repent of our inability to authentically love God and our neighbors. We renew our minds, saturating ourselves in the knowledge of God and allowing the renewal of our minds to transform all of us. And we rely on God to do as he promises, as he said to the prophet Ezekiel, to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh one that is truly capable of loving one another. So who are we? We are God's chosen people. We are holy and dearly loved. And by God's grace, working in us and through us, we can show the world what that means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the new identity you have given us. We thank you for the purpose you have given us. But we know we face an uphill battle every day to actually be that person and fulfill that purpose. We recognize that we are completely and totally dependent on you. And so we ask you to help us be clothed in virtue, to help us bear with one another, to forgive one another, And to encourage one another through the difficulties of this life. Help us to speak and to act in ways that truly honor you. Amen. Please rise and body.